Let's turn to Malachi chapter 1. We are starting this new brief series on Malachi. This series is called Authentic Worship. And that will be the title of my message for today, Authentic Worship. Today I'm going to read for us chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, then I will pray. It reads, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have made his hill country a desolation and his heritage a desert for jackals. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down until they are called the wicked country. The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Lord, again, we come before you as we begin this new series on the book of Malachi. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what true authentic worship is. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that worship is not just uh, the time that we spend at the beginning of our worship services, but, but worship is how we live our entire lives before you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we spend time over the, this next month and a half that we go through the book of Malachi, examining everything that we say, do, and think, our relationships, how we respond to you. And, and, and as we uh, go through this book, Lord, the, taking the good and the bad, <laughs> we pray, Lord, that uh, by the time we come to the, an end of this, Lord, um, that we would be true, authentic worshipers. We thank you now for all these things asking that you would give us ears to hear, but more importantly, that you would give us hearts that understand and obey. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. We are beginning uh, our new series on the book of Malachi, and I'm calling this short series Authentic Worship. Before we jump into the text, it's important uh, that we are on the same page about what authentic worship is. The word authentic can be defined as genuine, not false, real, or worthy of acceptance. Worship can be defined as the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Um, I actually think that this is a, a good definition, a dictionary definition of what worship is. Worship, according to this definition, must involve both feelings or emotions and expression or action. It is not one or the other. Real worship must possess both. Now, this is the issue that uh, most people see. Um, uh, the issue is that most people see that worship is only about emotion or feelings. <laughs> we tend to think that, uh, that the word worship is synonymous with the first half of Sunday service. Okay. It's the, the thing that we do at the beginning of church, or it is what we do when we want to be close to God. However, worship is not complete until it is, is expressed in some form of action. Okay. Now, um, we talked about uh, this a book before written by a Christian philosopher James Smith, and he uses uh, what he calls cultural liter liturgy, okay, cultural liturgy or cultural worship, right? Um, and so each week, many sports fans will organize their lives around their favorite sporting events. They wake up, they get dressed, 
They fight their way through traffic to get to their worship center, better known as the stadium. They stand outside for hours fellowshipping, better known as tailgate parties. They spend hours in their church service, better known as the game. During the game, they jump, they shout, and they dance. (laughs) Then after the game, they go home and they have Bible study, meditation, and memorization, better known as watching the highlights of the game they just left and memorizing the stats from the game. And finally, throughout the week, they spend time evangelizing, better known as asking their co-workers if they have seen the game and telling others how good their team is, how good God is, how good their team is. Okay. Now, isn't it funny that many of the people who spend hours and days each week involved in cultural worship of sports will avoid church because the service is too long. But they they sit through a game, a a one-hour game that takes three hours. But sitting through church is too long or because praise and worship is too emotional. And yet they spend three hours. Woo! (laughs) Right? You can do that for three hours, but... But praising and clapping and worshiping God, that, that's just too emotional. Okay. Or they think that worshiping God is irrational, but they worship at the altar of sports. And isn't it equally sad that so many Christians are way more devoted to the cultural worship of sports than the authentic worship of the true and living God. So many Christians can also spend hours fighting through traffic, going to tailgate parties, sitting through hours of a game, fighting traffic home, and then watch the the reruns and memorize the stats and talk to their friends. They can do all of those things, but they can't sit through church service. Or clap when it's time to praise God. Or they have to leave church early in order to go see the game. Pastor taking too long. We got to hurry. We got to get out. The game is on. What time is the Ravens playing today? (laughs) They can spend hours fellowshipping at tailgate parties or Super Bowl parties, but rush out the door as soon as service ends instead of fellowshipping with their brothers or sisters in Christ. Many Christians can memorize sports stats, but for some reason can't memorize scripture. They can evangelize for their favorite team, but have never told people about what God has done for them in Christ. This little illustration tells us all that we need to know about worship. The issue is not that we do not know what authentic worship is. The issue is to whom or to what we will give authentic worship. To wrap all of this up, let us define authentic worship in a way that will guide us as we study the book of Malachi. This is the definition that we will come back to um, over these next six Sundays that we look at Malachi. What is authentic worship? Authentic worship is living our entire lives in such a way that God finds us worthy of acceptance. Authentic worship is living our entire lives, not just Sunday morning, (laughs) okay, right? It's spending our, living our entire lives in such a way that God finds us worthy of acceptance. This includes our relationships, our minds, our choices, our emotions and desires, and our bodies. So that's our definition. That's what we will be thinking about when we talk about authentic worship for these next couple of Sundays. Now, since I have defined authentic worship, let's begin where 
Malachi begins, and that is with laying a foundation for authentic worship. Okay. A foundation for authentic worship. A foundation is the most important part of any structure. It is that which anchors and supports everything else. You get your foundation wrong, everything else collapses. You get the foundation wrong, everything else will collapse. When we talk about authentic worship of God, we must get the foundation of that worship right. Too often we think that the foundation for authentic worship begins and ends with us. We think that worship is about our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our circumstances. How many times have you heard someone say, I don't like that style of worship. I I don't like those kind of praise and worship songs. (laughs) Right. How how many times have, have people skipped? I know I used to do this. You skip praise and worship in church because you're not really comfortable with that. So you just come in time to hear the word. That's because, it's because you think that worship is about you, but it's not. The foundation that Malachi lays for authentic worship is, has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. The foundation is God's love for us. Look at what what Malachi says in verse 2. He begins here by simply quoting God. I have loved you, says the Lord. God's love for us is the anchor and the support for authentic worship and the entire Christian life. Now, I've said this before, and... um, over the years I've, I, of thinking about this, I think that this is absolutely true. Um, I, I know it has been true in my, in my own life, and, and I'm sure it has been true in many of our lives. But I think that probably the greatest struggle in the Christian life um, is not always sin, but I think our greatest struggle is accepting the fact that God really truly loves us. And I think that that the reason that we we struggle with sin and we give in to sin uh, so often and so easily is because we doubt whether or not God truly and really loves us. We can talk about God's love. We will sing about God's love. We will read scripture about God's love. But when the rubber meets the road, And when we're all alone facing whatever circumstance we're facing, the truth is that we really aren't sure if God really loves us. And because we really aren't sure if God really loves us, we end up looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, notice where Malachi begins. He begins this Um, this section, of course, um, but I think that this phrase about God's love um, actually is the underlying factor in all of the six sections of the book, okay? And so we're going to come back to this uh, as we work our way through it, but I think that, that this is the underlying factor here. Malachi begins by quoting God as saying, I have loved you, says the Lord. Malachi begins by using God's covenant name. When God decided to bring um, Israel into a relationship with himself, he gave them the name Yahweh as his covenant name. He is his covenant Lord. Using that name is a promise that God is in relationship with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. So in essence, Malachi is telling them that their covenant God, the one who is in relationship with them, that brought him to himself, them to himself, he is telling them, I love you. And this type of love 
It's not a love that's wishy-washy. It doesn't start, it doesn't stop based on what we do. The, the perfect tense of this verb here means that he started loving them in the past and that love will continue into the present. He says, I've loved you and that love will continue on forever. What we want to see here is that God really does love all of us, <laughs> right? Whether we think so or feel it in our circumstances, we have to come back to the fact that our covenant God truly loves us. And we have to become assured of this fact. This knowledge of God's love for us must radiate down to the core of who we are. And it must permeate our entire way of thinking and feeling, if it does not radiate to the core of who we are, and if it does not start permeating everything that we think and feel, we will be lost in the Christian life. Listen to how Paul says this. He says this in Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now notice what Paul is saying here in this passage. He is praying uh, for the Ephesians, right? And, and I would say this is included for all, um, all believers. This is something I, uh, I come back to and I, I pray for the, every member of the upper room. But what Paul says here in his prayer is that he is praying that God would root you and ground you in his love, that his love would be the foundation of your life. And he is praying that he would strengthen you by the Holy Spirit so that you can comprehend how deep his love is, how wide his love is, how high his love is, that you would comprehend how great his love for you is. So that when you are rooted and grounded in his love and you know how, how deep and how wide and how broad his love is for you, you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You cannot achieve anything in the Christian life apart from understanding how great God's love is for you. It's important that we get this foundation right. If we do not, we will not respond correctly to God's love, just like the Israelites did not respond correctly. Now, what we notice here is, uh, we'll see this in every single section. Okay. God makes a statement, and then there is a rhetorical response <laughs> uh, from the nation of Israel, uh, contradicting what God has said. And then God will give evidence for why his statement is true, and often he ends with a judgment if there is no repentance. Now, notice here <clears throat> what uh, Israel says in response to God's claim that he loves them. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Where is your proof? How, how do I know that you truly love us? God, the king of the universe, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. I had to throw the catechism question in there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is telling them that he loves them. And they like, eh, I don't really believe that. 
Where's your proof? They doubted and rejected the idea that God truly and genuinely loved them. Now, probably no one in here would say this out loud, right? If I say, you know what? God really loves you. Now, one person in this place would be like, nah, I don't believe that. How, how has God really loved us? Okay. Uh, because we, as good Christians, right, uh, we have learned the lingo, okay? We, we know what to say in church, right? Like, God is good, and all the time, there you go. Okay, we, 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 just, we just know what to say, okay? We, we, we know what to say. So, but like the nation of Israel, what we tend to do is we spend time outwardly praying and singing and going to the temple and offering sacrifices to the Lord as if everything is okay, but inwardly, we have doubts. Doubts that we don't express, that we don't tell other people, but inwardly we have doubts. But we still come to church. We still get on ministries. We still pray and sing and do all of these things because on the outside we know the right things to do, but we struggle on the inside. The question is, how, how can we do this? How can this be? How can people constantly be involved in the worship of God and at the same time doubt God's love for them? What barriers or barrier can push the nation of Israel and us to doubt God's love? And I think that the circumstances that, uh, uh, of the day is what answers this question. Now, you all remember if you don't remember, I'm going to say it, and then you'll remember it the next time. <laughs> you all will remember that around uh, 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked the nation of, of uh, um, uh, attacked Judah, right? And over the next 20 years, he came back two more times and, and kept attacking the nation of, of Judah, right? And he deported people away, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? So, so they're deported back to Babylon, and so the final time he comes, he destroys the nation, um, the, um, the, the city of Jerusalem, and then he burns the temple to the ground. And Israel is then in exile in Babylon for 70 years, right, until the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled. But after 70 years, they're set free, and they're able to go back to their homeland. Okay. Then finally, the temple was rebuilt around 516 B.C., and the people were so enthusiastic that now that they are back in God's land, they now have rebuilt God's house, they're now going to experience all the blessings of the covenant that God promised to them. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. They're back in the land, but they are not allowed to rule over themselves. They're still now politically under the rule of Persia. And all of the economic blessings that they thought that they would receive from their covenant God didn't materialize. They got by, but they didn't get the prosperity that they were hoping for. And I think that these two things are the two things that cause the people of Israel to begin to doubt whether or not God truly loved us. So when God says, I love you, how have you loved us? You, you, you have not set us free from those who oppress us. How do you love us and you will not bless us financially? Today, we tend to think that if we were living in Bible days, that we would be somehow different, right? We, we listen to the Bible stories and be like, man, that was dumb. I would have never did that. Man, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I would have never ate from that tree, <laughs> right? And so we, 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 we keep thinking that we would somehow make better decisions <laughs> because hindsight is twenty twenty, and we know the consequences. We're like, oh, yeah, I would never do that. And then we leave and go and do the same stupid stuff in our own lives. Okay. <laughs> okay. But think of it this way. 
how many African-Americans or other minorities have we encountered that after reflecting on the history of slavery, racism, and the fight for political and economic justice, have rejected Christ and Christianity because they feel God did not come through them for them politically and economically? Or how many people do you know that have given up on God and church because they prayed and cried and sought the Lord on a particular issue and he did not answer their prayers. You see, we, we can look in the past and say, oh, wow, that, you know, I, well, I understand why, but I would, that we wouldn't do that today. But we're doing the same thing today. We have expectations of God, and when God does not meet our expectations, we begin to doubt whether or not he truly loves us. You see, our circumstances oftentimes becomes the barriers to accepting and embracing God's love for us. Like the Jews, we may continue to engage in religious practices, going to church and all of these things, or whatever we call worship, but our worship will be half-hearted and not authentic. Sometimes we continue to go to church, but we come in late, we leave early. If I go, I don't go. And, eh. I still worship God, but it's, it's half-hearted. It's not really authentic. Because of the time in which we live, in the bad teachings of many televangelists, we tend to think that the proof of God's love is answered prayer, prosperity, and being able to live our best life now. <laughs> we, we think that in order for God to prove that he loves us, we have to have some kind of material prosperity. We set the criteria that God must meet in order to prove his love for us. And now, I don't know about you, but God is the king of the universe. He, he, he probably never, he, he purposefully <laughs> frustrates our criteria. Okay. He is God. We are not. He is free <laughs> to do whatever he pleases. Okay. But I think a lot of times what we do is, is that we end up judging the seriousness of God's love based on our criteria. And if God doesn't meet our criteria when we believe he should meet it, then we question his love. However, Malachi says that the first motivating factor for authentic worship is God's election. Notice God makes the statement that he loves us. And then in the rest of the verses, Malachi gives us what we need to look at, the criteria that God has selected himself as proof. And this is what should motivate us to accept God's love. The first thing is God's election. God himself, the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things, chose you to be in a relationship with himself. Listen to what. Malachi says, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God's response, is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Notice here, this is a statement of election, God choosing Jacob for himself and not his brother Esau. And we see this, this idea run throughout Scripture. We even will see this in the New Testament. But what we are trying to see here is that God did not pick Jacob or any of us because we deserved it or because we earned his love. He picked us when we were his enemies. According to Paul in Romans chapter 5, 
He says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will, he, will we be saved through him from the wrath to come? For while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely now, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? God did not pick you because you were a good person. <laughs> None of us are good people. God did not pick us because we performed enough good deeds that somehow now we earned getting into heaven. The Bible says all of your righteousness is like a, excuse me for this, a maxi pad. You know, this is the Larry Thompson, you know, version, okay? Because that's what a filthy rag is back then. That's what a filthy rag was used for, in case you didn't know. That is how God sees your good works. Oh, but I help the little lady cross the street. Oh, but I give to missions. Oh, but I feed the poor. God sees all of that as a filthy rag. If you think that's going to get you into heaven, you're confused about what, how good your good deeds are. God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, when we were his enemies, he died for us. And not only did God pick us when we're, we were his enemies, Paul goes on to say that he picked you before he even created the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in Christ. You know what all that boils down to? Before God even created the world, he picked you for himself because it made him happy. That's it. Before you could do anything good or bad, he picked you for himself. God really loves you. God loves you. And as a matter of fact, Paul in this verse says that he was literally thinking about you forever. <laughs> in eternity past, before he even created the world, he was thinking about you. And in your life, he has spent your life pursuing you and bringing you to himself. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. Now, let me uh, hit this really quickly before I um, hit my last two points and be done on time. <laughs> he says here in verses two and three, he says, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And many people have a problem with this quote because it seems to suggest that God hates those people that he has not chosen. However, uh, that is not what this quote means. Okay. Um, you, you can make the argument that God um, hates people. I believe that that is true. You know, we can look in, in the Psalms and says God hates the wicked. That, that is true. Okay. Um, but, but that is not what this uh, quote is saying. Okay. So now I want us to look real quick. I'm going to have you look at this. Okay. So that, so that, that, that you can get, get it. I want you to really quickly turn to Genesis chapter 29 so we can understand what, what does it mean when the Bible says God loved Jacob, but he hates Esau. Okay. What, does, what, does, what does it mean for God to hate? Genesis chapter 29 All right, I'm going to start reading so I can hurry up and be done on time. Tw verse 30, Genesis 29, verse 30. It says, so Jacob 
went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she named him Simeon. Now, notice here what's going on. We know that, that Jacob uh, has two wives, Rachel and Leah. One, he was tricked into marrying, and one that he truly wanted to marry, right? He then has to work seven additional years in order to get uh, Rachel for himself, uh, and so he now has two wives. And he, I don't think that he did, just did not love, you know, Leah, right? He just really loved Rachel. Okay. And, and when you compare the way he treated one over the other, right, right, R Rachel was un felt unloved okay. because he probably gave all of his attention to, well, most of his attention. I mean, Leah did have like six kids, but he gave, <laughs> he gave most of his attention to, to Rachel. <laughs> okay. Now, she felt unloved, but notice what it says in verse 33. 33. It says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Did, 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 did Jacob really hate Leah? Or did he not love her as much as he loved Rachel? He didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. So the, the idea here is not that Jacob hated her, even though she used the word hate. Uh, this, this, this phrase about hatred is a comparison of two things, one being loved and one being loved less. Everyone see that? The, the thing that is loved less, we use the phrase to be hated. It's not that he really hates, like he has animosity. You just don't love the other one as much. Let me give you another example of it. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. And then you can, in your own free time, I'll read um, Luke 14, 26. These two verses are parallel verses. Jesus is, is, uh, is the one speaking here. They're quoting Jesus. Listen to what. Uh, Matthew says in chapter 10, verse 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So if you love your father, your mother, your daughter, family members, more than you love me, you are not worthy of me. Now, listen to how Luke quotes this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Luke 14, 26. He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now, this is the same quote. One uses the word love and the other uses the word hate because what we're trying to get you to see is that the way you are supposed to love Jesus should make other people feel like, wow, they must hate me. <laughs> I mean, I wish they would love me like that <laughs> because when you're comparing the two things, one thing should be loved more, and the other thing should be loved, but loved less. So when God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, he's not saying that he hates Esau or has animosity towards Esau. What he is saying is that he has set aside Jacob for a special kind of love. 
I love Esau, but not like I love Jacob. And that is the same type of love that he has for all Christians. He loves the whole world, but not like he loves Christians. He has set us aside for a special kind of love. The second motivating factor for authentic worship is God's justice. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. When people are upset that God didn't stop or address some form of, uh, of injustice for them, what they mean is God didn't act in the manner and time that they thought best. But we have to remember that God cares about justice way more than we could ever care about it. It is the foundation of his throne or his righteous rule. And God being an all-knowing and all-wise God knows the best manner and timing to bring about justice. Now, um, what I want us to look at here in Malachi is a statement that God is going to bring about justice for his people. Listen to what he says, again, starting at verse 3. He says, Jacob I have loved, but I have hated Esau. I have made his hill country a desolation and his heritage a desert for jackals. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down until they are called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God is promising his people that those who have harmed them will be repaid. That he will mete out justice, and when he meets out justice, it will be complete and it will be eternal. Authentic worship is fueled by God's justice because regardless of what we have to endure or how long we have to endure it, in God's own time, he will bring about justice on his and our enemies. And when he does, his judgment, ju judgment will be complete, perfect, and forever. Now, we cannot be short-sighted in this. The very thing that we oftentimes allow to be a barrier to authentic worship um, before God actually should be a motivation for our worship. We think that God being slow to bring about justice is a reason for us to turn our back on God, and actually God being slow to bring about justice should be the reason that we truly and genuinely worship him. Now, here's why. We think that when God is delaying justice on our enemies, that justice is never going to come through. And we want God to bring about justice or to say, what do we want? When do we want it? There you go. <laughs> okay. okay. We want justice and we want it right now. And that is because we don't understand what justice is. Justice is God wiping out sinners for sin. And when we want justice now, what we're saying is, God, please punish me too. We don't think about that. We just say, no, punish them for what they've done to me. But all we like sheep have gone astray. In God's patience and in his mercy, God doesn't bring justice immediately. In God's patience and his mercy, he does not bring forth justice immediately. Because if he brought forth justice immediately for every single issue, no one would survive. 
because when God comes with justice, he's going to crush all sinners. And that includes you and me. But God is patient, as Peter tells us in Second Peter, chapter three. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is going to bring about justice. But he's being merciful right now. He's being merciful to our enemies and he's being merciful to us. He's giving all of us time to get it right, because when the whistle is blown and he shows up. That's it. He's going to bring justice on all sinners. Now, this is the reason why. God's justice should motivate us to authentic worship. Because we know right now God is being gracious and merciful and patient with all of us. But we also know that one day God is going to put down all injustice. And when he does so, just like he promised the nation of Israel about the nation of Edom. Who were being unjust to them. When he comes, he is going to deal with all injustice and he will make everything right and everything well. And his punishment will be total and it will be permanent. God's justice motivates us to live live our lives in such a way that God finds us worthy of acceptance because he is patient with us when we sin, because we know that he will um, he will ultimately judge sin. And because we know that on the day of judgment, we will find mercy. And grace in our time of need. The final thing that. Malachi says here about authentic worship, the the final motivating factor is the fact that God is universally great. Listen to what he says here in verse five, talking about the judgment on our enemies. He says, your own eyes will see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. When we see God bring to pass our deliverance in the final judgment, we will then know that God is great and everybody will know worldwide that God is great and greatly to be praised. Now, this, as I said, Malachi begins here with talking about God's love, because, again, I think that it is the foundational issue for all of the other sections. When, when Malachi begins in the next section, when we start looking at uh, this is going to be really bad uh, for, for pastors and preachers. <laughs> OK, it, he spends basically the rest of the chapter and down into chapter two addressing spiritual leaders that are leading his people astray. Okay. And the issue, again, is lack of love for God. When we get into chapter three and he starts talking about, um, you know, why people are not tithing and giving to his work. And he says, you're robbing me. What is the issue? The issue is a lack of love for God. So so all six of the session sections that we go through here. Right. We have to keep in mind that when you love God, you will worship him authentically you will live every aspect of your life your relationship the way you think the way you feel the choices that you make the places you go all of these things will be guided by how you about your your love for God so as we're working our way through this right it it will get rough not just for you it'll be rough for me too right because I've been reading through the book of Malachi and I was like "Mm, mm-hmm I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy, <laughs> especially with the, you know, the, this part on the priest. He talks about how, you know, bad spiritual leaders. He says, I will take the dung of your sacrifices and I'm going to spread it in the face of you and your children. I say, not my children, Lord. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm, I'm about to be the best 
the best pass I could be, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But so it, it, it's, it's going to be rough for all of us, okay? But again, we're talking about the king of the universe and how we are supposed to treat the king of the universe, okay? So it's going to be rough. It's not going to be easy, right? It's going to feel like every, every Sunday for the next five, five more Sundays as we go through this, it's going to feel like, man, I wish pastor would stop coming here and beating us up. Okay, It's not me. It says, says thus says the Lord. <laughs> okay. All right. But we're going to get through it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to come and to hear your word. The author of Hebrews says that your word is a two edged sword. Sometimes, uh, like a surgeon, you have to cut us in order to heal us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to sit under the, the knife, sit under the scalpel, sit under you as the master surgeon. Because the truth be told, all of us, including myself, from time to time, we lack authenticity in our worship of you. We do it out of habit because this is how we're raised or because we know that it's the right thing to do. But our hearts are not passionate for you the way they should be. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, that you would, would put your finger on those areas in our hearts, those barriers that are keeping us from being able to openly embrace and feel your love. I pray, Lord, that as we are, are listening to the call of Malachi to the people of Israel, that we would hear your spirit calling us back to true and authentic worship, living every aspect of our lives in a way that pleases and honors you. I pray, Lord, that as you put your finger on things in our lives that that we would confess, that we would say, yes, Lord, that is me, and that we would return to you with all of our hearts and truly love you the same way that you love us. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for your patience, Lord, that you are patient with us even when we fail you, even when we rebel against you. You are patient and gracious and merciful to us. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be rooted and grounded in your love. Help us to know that you plan to have a relationship with us from all eternity, and you are working out daily in our lives all that you have planned for us so that we could know you and love you the same way you love us. We thank you, Lord, for the tough passages and the good passages in your word so that we could be full-grown, mature people in Christ that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.